So one thing that, that no one told me and my wife about having a kid was that there'd be times in our life when we would watch the same movie every day, multiple times for months. Starting this summer and ending a few weeks ago, Ray and I had watched the movie Trolls with our daughter at least 10 bajillion times. We were going insane. Um, So my wife devised a plan to change it up, and she convinced our two-and-a-half-year-old to try something new, which pretty much makes her a hostage negotiator. If you've ever had to reason with a -a two-and-a-half-year-old from changing from the movie that's like her favorite movie of all time, where she doesn't really recognize there are other movies that exist, to try something new, it was an incredible feat. But now we completely regret that decision. A few weeks ago, we convinced our daughter to watch the movie Secret Life of Pets. Uh, If you've seen it before, it's based in New York. It's really cute. But the opening scene to that movie, you actually hear the song Welcome to New York by Taylor Swift. And so from the moment our daughter at least heard it, she was hooked. And she immediately became a Swifty. So for the last few weeks, we've listened to Welcome to New York about 30 times a day. Uh, Every time we're in the car, every time we're at home, we turn it on and we listen to it over and over and over again. I could sing it to you. I'm not going to, but I could. And eventually her love for Welcome to New York transitioned to love for all things Taylor. We introduced her to the songs 22, We're Never Getting Back Together, Shake It Off. So every time we're in the car, she asks for Taylor Swift. When we get home, she tells Alexa to play Taylor Swift. Every music device that we own is constantly playing Taylor Swift, which makes our house not fun. Some of you guys are like, I want to get to know that guy. You don't. It's Taylor Swift, 24 hours a day. Uh, and, and I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. With us constantly listening to and watching things with Taylor Swift, our Amazon and Google accounts are starting to think that we have an obsession. And so now when we're on the internet, we're on Facebook or on Amazon, it's like, you might want this album, Taylor Swift. Or you're on Facebook, and it's like targeted ads. And so the internet is now targeting us as Taylor Swift fans. And so every time we listen to a song or watch a video, there's always another Taylor Swift thing that follows. So this week, it was because you watched Shake It Off by Taylor Swift, you might also like secret messages in Taylor Swift songs, which we did. We watched it. (laughs) And so we actually watched this video, Secret Messages in Taylor Swift Songs, and and this video, (laughs) this is insane, guys. This is a real thing. And this video starts, and it's this narrator talking about this song called All Too Well. Never heard it before. It's going to be played in our house about 40 times over the next week. And in this song, Taylor says a line, I walked through the door with you, the air was cold, but something about it felt like home somehow, and I left my scarf there at your sister's house, and you still got it in your drawer even now. For those of you who know the song, the melody was not right. I know that. I don't care. (laughs) But this video starts talking about how this song is a secret song that was written about Jake Gyllenhaal because of those lines about the scarf. And the narrator says, you know that, and because you know that now, it makes the song better. I don't know if that's true. But the reasoning behind this is because there was one time when Jake wore a scarf and Taylor wore a scarf, and then they wrote the song. It's this beautiful thing. But because of this, we're supposed to appreciate Taylor Swift's songs even more. And at the end of this video, the narrator actually actually says that knowing kind of the secret and subtle and hidden meanings to Taylor Swift's songs takes them to the next level. I kind of feel like Christmas carols are that way as well. I'm not a huge fan of Christmas music. I don't fully understand all the songs. Some of them are just plain terrible, let's be honest. But a lot of times we sing these songs in church or we hear them on the radio, maybe at Starbucks, and we might know the words and we might be able to sing the whole thing, but do we really know what it means? In fact, most Christmas carols, the ones that we sang today especially, have an incredible story with a deep meaning that most of the time we're unaware of. And so I think it's our job to figure out what is that meaning? What are the deeper meanings of these songs to fully understand just how powerful they are? 
And so today we're starting a brand new series called Christmas Carols. For some of you, you're thrilled. You love Christmas music. You've been playing it since Thanksgiving. You have Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You on repeat, right? You're those people. Yes, Mike Greenberg, everybody. (laughs) Some of you aren't as thrilled. You think Christmas music should only be played on Christmas and then locked in a vault for the next 365 days. That's me. That's me. Um, But no matter what side of the fence you're on, I think you're actually going to love this series. Whether you love Christmas music and you would listen to it year-round, or whether it's one of those things that you try to avoid as much as you can, I think you're really going to enjoy what we talk about. So over the next four weeks, we're going to be taking a popular Christmas carol and not only singing them, we're going to learn about those songs and we're going to try to find the deeper meaning. And then what we're actually going to do is after I preach and after we take communion, we're actually going to sing that song again. And so our hope is that we sang it the first time and maybe we know the words and maybe we can sing along to it, but our hope is that the second time you sing this song, that song is different and it changes for you. Today we're going to be talking about Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And so here's some of the history of that song. First, it's the oldest English language Christmas carol. So as a Christmas carol, it was actually originally written in English, which is different than a lot of the songs that we sing. And so it's the oldest one that we still have and that we still sing today. And so in 1973, the song was written by a guy named Charles Wesley in Georgia. And when Wesley introduced it to his church, people loved it. And the song quickly gained popularity in the Methodist church. But it actually became so popular that it jumped denominations and people started singing it in the Calvinist church, which during the 1700s was unheard of. Methodists and Calvinists barely interacted. They barely even talked to each other. And so for them to both be singing the same song was really powerful. It speaks to how good this song is. And so uh, the song started to get popularity, and eventually a guy named George Whitefield heard it. He was a Calvinist preacher, and he decided to change some of the lyrics. And once he changed the lyrics, he actually published it. And so Whitefield kind of stole this song from Wesley, adjusted a little bit, and got it published to where it was able to be sung by churches across uh, the eastern United States. And so they continued to sing it, uh, mostly a cappella. Every once in a while there would be an accompaniment. But ultimately, uh, this song for 100 years was just the lyrics. 1855, a man named William Cummings added the melody to the popular Christmas song, the melody that we sing today. Cummings combined a melody from a song written by Felix Mendelssohn, who wrote this song as a tribute to Gutenberg in the printing press. And so Cummings took that melody and added it to Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and that's what created the song that we sing today. In 1857, it was officially published, and over the next few years, it was adopted by other denominations and other publishers, which again speaks to just how powerful this song is. Within a decade, the new Hark the Herald Angels Sing was one of those recognized carols in the world. The road to acceptance and fame for this Christmas carol began when Wesley wrote a song, when Whitefield kind of stole it and changed it and published it. And Cummings added a melody that was written by Mendelssohn as a tribute to Gutenberg. It's incredible. I don't know about you, but I've never thought that Hark the Herald Angels Sing took over 100 years to become the song that we sing today. I never would have thought that four different contributors contributors came together to create this music. So much effort, such talented people, and the fact that we're still singing it a few hundred years later is just incredible. And so the history of this song is fascinating, but the meaning of the song is even better. So Hark the Herald Angels Sing has three verses. There's no chorus or bridge. We did a a kind of an adjusted version today. 
But the song, when you look at verse 1, 2, and 3, essentially sums up Jesus' life. It's, it's all of it in one song in three minutes. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through each verse. And we're going to talk about how this relates to Jesus and the story of his own life. And so verse 1 says, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. So the first verse of this song talks about the birth of Jesus. And this actually comes straight from the book of Luke. And so in Luke 2, 8 through 12, this is where Wesley got it from. And this is what it says, and this is what Luke wrote. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. So this is where the beginning of that first verse comes from. It comes straight from Luke. The night that Jesus was born, an angel appeared to a group of shepherds tending to their sheep. And these are just normal blue-collar guys. And so an angel appearing to them in the middle of their job is pretty spectacular, easily the highlight of their lives. But to the angel, the announcement of God's birth had to seem vastly understated. This was the most significant event to ever occur at the time. The Son of God had been born, but God, being the God that we know, he's humble. And he chosen out the birth of his son by an angel quietly making an appearance to a few farmhands guarding their sheep. Compared to what, would have, what could have been, that's a very understated notification. But Luke continues the story in Luke 2, 13 through 14. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now, Luke doesn't say how many angels were there, but later we're told that Jesus had at his disposal around 10,000 angels. So I suspect that thousands of angels illuminated the sky in order to praise God. When you think about that, that's incredibly impressive. It's glorious. But there's something seriously wrong about this from a marketing standpoint. 10,000 angels performing, but probably fewer than 10 shepherds in the field. So what do you think the angels said when they got back up to heaven? What a downer. All those rehearsals and no one shows up except for a few shepherds. Do you think we got the wrong location? No. The angels were saying that's just like God. He loves people so much that he went through all that trouble for a handful of shepherds. Carol continues, join the triumph of the skies, and with an angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. When Wesley wrote this song, his hope would be that people would literally join in the triumph of the skies. His hope would be that people wouldn't just sing this song, it wouldn't just pop up at Christmas and then disappear, but that people would, would celebrate the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem to join in God's angels in celebrating this glorious day. And the reality is he wrote this so that his people and his church and the people that he led would be God's messengers, to tell everyone they knew that God's coming to earth in the form of a child, 
to tell the people that they loved, the people that they cared about, the people that they worked with, the people that they lived next door to, the people that they, they spent their life with, to tell all of them that Jesus was here and to proclaim that. To be honest, that's one of the reasons why we do Christmas Eve services, right? We don't just do that so we can, we can get together with our family and celebrate as a small group. Um, the reason why we do Christmas Eve is to proclaim that Jesus was born. Uh, for Collective this year, we're actually doing two services. We're doing the 23rd at night and the 24th during the day, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But the reason why we're doing two services, even though Collective right now is one service, is because we realize we need to do everything we can to let people know that Jesus has come that he's here, that he was born. And that's one of the things when Wesley wrote this, he wanted his church to do, was to not just keep it in here, but to join in the triumph of the skies and to celebrate the fact that Christ was born in Bethlehem. Verse 2 says this, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Please the man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. And so if the first verse was about the birth of Jesus, the second verse emphasizes Jesus' life. We're kind of working through the whole story of Jesus. So Jesus was born a child, but was also fully God. At the beginning of the second verse, we sing, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he had existed for all eternity, before time even began. John writes in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is like a nickname for Jesus. It's a metaphor. So this is what he's saying. In the beginning, before time was created, was Jesus. Jesus was with God, and Jesus is God. And Jesus himself, while he lived on earth, taught people that he was God. Other religious leaders don't make that claim. Muhammad and Buddha both don't claim to be God, just that they spoke for him. That's what makes Jesus different. That's what makes him unique. To be honest, that's what makes him controversial. Because he doesn't just say, I'm a person. He says, I am God. But although Jesus was God, he chose to become a human. And that's described in the second part of this verse when he says, Offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Wesley writes that Jesus was the incarnate deity. What that means is Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus lived a life, and he took on our humanity. He chose to become human. He was born a helpless infant who depended on inexperienced peasant parents. When he fell, he skinned his knee. When he didn't eat, he got hungry. He experienced good days and bad joys and heartache. And that's a pretty amazing thing to think about because it means that Jesus can understand our problems as well. It means that Jesus understands our life and what we go through on a day-to-day basis. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we, don't, we do not have a high priest, which referring to Jesus, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. 
How comforting is that? How comforting is that to know that Jesus was born a child, was fully God and fully human, and was put on this earth so that he could empathize with us? Not just sympathy, not just sit on a throne and look down and go, man, I feel so bad for these people, but to empathize to the point where he understands what you feel. He understands what it's like to be in in this world. He understands how hard this season is. It's not new to him. He's experienced that. God clothed himself in human flesh and took on our humanity, and he chose to do so through the virgin birth. The prophet Isaiah actually predicted this event happening a few hundred years earlier. In Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah wrote, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to the son, and we will call him Emmanuel. Now, Emmanuel means God with us, and we're actually going to talk about that in a few weeks when we do, O come, O come, Emmanuel. But 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah, who was a prophet, someone who spoke for God, actually predicted and said out loud to these people, Jesus is coming, Emmanuel is coming, a God is coming, and he will be human in the flesh. And then 700 years later in Luke 1, this is what it says, this is what Luke wrote. God sent sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings to you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Skipping ahead a little bit, Luke 1, 34 through 35. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, there are a few Bible teachings that have been more scorned than the virgin birth, and we get that. So when Wesley wrote, offspring of the virgin's womb, he knew that people would get hung up on that line. Like, that's the reality. We, we get hung up on that today, right? Even though it was written over 250 years ago, that's still a gap for a lot of people. That's still one of those things that people struggle to believe. But here's one of the ways that I look at it. So there's a church in Louisville called Southeast Christian Church that has played a major role in church planting in the D.C. area. It's giant. Uh, they call it Six Flags Over Jesus while they're there. It's like a billion people. It's like all of Kentucky and Cincinnati and everyone there goes to Southeast. Um, But even though the church is humongous, this church has committed dollars and people and time to start churches in the Northeast. And so they realized that this area was the hardest and most difficult and the most unchurched area in the United States. And so instead of investing in Louisville, they actually invest heavily in, in, in this area and specifically invest heavily in us. Without this church, uh, we wouldn't be here uh, for multiple reasons. Our, the church I started growing, going to when I was a kid, the church I did my internship at, the church I did my church playing residency, Southeast Christian Church has played a role in that. And their leader and their, and their pastor, his name is Bob Russell, um, and, and this is what he says when it comes to this idea of the virgin birth and, and sometimes how we can get hung up on it. He says this, If you can believe the first verse in the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then the rest is easy. If we can believe that God did that, then why would we think anything else is outside of his scope? If God is so powerful that he can create the universe, then nothing is impossible, even a virgin birth. And if God can, give a, can have a virgin birth, then solving your infertility isn't going to be a problem to him. If God can have a virgin birth, then giving you peace while you look for the new job isn't impossible for him. If God can have a virgin give birth, then bringing new life to a marriage which seems dead isn't a problem for him. And the reality is nothing is, with, is impossible for God. 
And when he clothed himself in human flesh and took on our humanity, he chose to do so through the virgin birth. And that's not only comforting, but it's kind of critical to the whole story. A few years ago, Larry King was asked, if you could select any one person across all of history to interview, who would it be? And King answered that he would like to interview Jesus Christ. He said, I'd like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. Now, Larry is right in identifying the virgin birth as being critical. But I wonder if he understands why it's critical. Why does it matter? Because it isn't just that Jesus was born a virgin. It's that he lived as a human and didn't sin. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, we all have cravings of the flesh. And essentially what Paul is saying, we all have the the tendency and the desire to sin. We all have this thing in us that makes us want to walk outside of alignment with God. But the reason why the virgin birth matters is because Jesus, who was born a man, because he was born of a virgin, didn't have those same cravings. He didn't have that same propensity to sin. We know that he felt tempted, but he lived a sinless life. And the reason why that matters is because Jesus, in that perfect life, eventually lived that life and died on a cross and resurrected from the dead as a sacrifice for our sins. And so the reason why the virgin birth mattered is because it led to Jesus dying and resurrecting from the dead. And when the Christmas carol says, God and sinner reconciled, what that teaches us is about the atoning death of Jesus. And because we all have this tendency to choose wrong, to walk out of alignment with God, we've gone off course at some point, we've all turned our backs or turned away from God at some point in our life. But Jesus came to reconcile God and sinner through dying on a cross and paying the price for our sins. The reason why it matters is so that we can have a relationship with God. And if we're being honest, that probably meets our greatest need, doesn't it? Not just in like a philosophical way or even in an eternal spiritual way, but in a very practical right here and right now kind of way. I think deep down, we all have the sense that something has gone desperately wrong in our lives, in our world. If you watch the news, you feel that way every single day. And there's a part of us that wants someone to save us. There's a part of us every single day that looks at what's going on in our own life and the relationships that we have in our family and in the world, and we think something isn't right. And when it says God and sinner reconciled, what Wesley wrote and what Jesus did is bridge that gap so we don't have to feel that way. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And so the second verse, the reason why it matters, the reason why we sing about a virgin birth, the reason why we sing about Jesus' life is because Jesus, who was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, didn't sin, but lived a life where he understands what we feel, he understands what we're going through, but eventually died on a cross and resurrected from the dead so that we could be in relationship with God. Our sin created that gap that we could not attain God, and Jesus did that for us. 
And so the first verse is about his birth and the second is about his life. The third talks about the resurrection. Verse three says, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons to earth, born to give them second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. In this verse, Wesley writes the phrase, risen with healing in his wings. And what he's talking about here is the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus was crucified and three days later, or he's buried and three days later, he rose from the grave. And when Jesus was buried, his enemies remembered this. Jesus actually predicted it. Isaiah predicted it. And these, all these people knew, okay, if he's going to resurrect from the dead, this is when it happened. And because of that, his enemies, and because of that, the people who didn't want to be around him, the people that didn't trust him, did everything they could to secure that body. They covered it up with a rock big enough so that we couldn't move. And they stationed guards outside. But the strongest soldiers from the Roman army, which is the world's strongest army, couldn't keep Jesus' body in the grave. And Jesus rose, just like he said he would, to live forever. We've talked about this before at Collective. Jesus' resurrection is the foundation of our faith. If the resurrection doesn't happen, while the virgin birth is cool, it kind of doesn't mean anything to us, right? Like, it means he's powerful, maybe he's important, but if the resurrection doesn't happen, this church doesn't exist. If the resurrection doesn't happen, we can never attain God and talking about spending eternity with him and talking about trying to walk in line with him. It's pointless. And so the third verse is all about this resurrection and what that means for us. We continue to sing in the third verse, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. And so essentially, if we believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead, what does that mean? That means he brings light and life with him. In John 8, 12, Jesus said, When Jesus spoke again to, to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Many of us could describe our lives right now, or at some point in the past, as very dark. We felt surrounded by darkness. We try to peer into the future and find the right direction, but it looks dark. And Jesus says, I'm that light. I can bring that light to you. Uh, many of you have, have learned or spent time learning about Helen Keller. And if you didn't know, Helen Keller uh, was born deaf and blind. And uh, in an interview, or, or not an interview, sorry, when she was writing things down about her own life, she described her life as a life full of darkness. And that was until the day she discovered language. And here's how she describes that day. Someone was drawing water, and my teacher placed my hand under the spout. As the cool stream gushed over one hand, she spelled into the other the word water, first slowly, then rapidly. I stood still, my whole attention fixed on the motion of her fingers. Suddenly I felt a misty consciousness as of something forgotten. A thrill of returning was revealed to me. I knew that W-A-T-E-R meant that wonderful, cool something that was flowing over my hand. That living word awakened my soul. It gave it light. It gave me hope and joy and set me free. Some of you feel like you're in darkness. It might not be the same way as Helen Keller describes it, but you kind of get that, right? 
You feel like there's darkness in your life now when you look to the future. You see darkness when you look to the past. You see darkness. And what I would love to do and what this church would love to do is point you to the light and spell into the palm of your hand, Jesus. First slowly, then rapidly, that you might know that J-E-S-U-S is that light. That Jesus brings light into the darkness. And the living word awakens our soul and it gives us that light. It gives us hope and joy and it sets us free. And that light will illuminate the path in front of us. When Wesley wrote the third verse, that's what he wanted us to know. You know, Christmas is one of those things where you drive around downtown or you put up your tree and there's light everywhere, but the reality is, do we recognize the fact that that's just temporary? But real light comes through Jesus. And Jesus doesn't just bring light, he brings healing too. The carol says, risen with healing in his wings. And Wesley lifted this straight out of the Bible. Malachi 4.2 says, but for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness, who is Jesus, will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. That's Old Testament for you, right? They have to like throw that one farming illustration in there. Now, I wasn't raised on a farm, so that makes no sense to me. Um, but I've actually learned that calves who are born in winter are often kept in stalls until spring. And when they're allowed to go out to pasture, those calves will race as fast as they can, darting in one direction after another, kicking their heels and running in circles because they realize that they're finally free. Malachi writes, he says, that when you've experienced the healing touch of Jesus, you'll go out and leap like a calf released from the stall. The life that Jesus brings us here on earth is a life of healing. We've spent so much of our lives locked up, boxed in, tied down, and finally, Jesus' touch brings healing to deep and scarred and broken places. And it should be liberating. We can finally go out from our addiction. We can go out from a string of unhealthy relationships. We can go out from our depression, our negativity, our apathy, We go out from our lack of purpose, meaning, and fulfillment, and because of the healing touch of Jesus, we begin to experience real life for the first time. And because of Jesus, we can experience not only real life here on earth, but also eternal life in heaven, because Jesus brings victory over death. The third verse we also sing, Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the son of earth, born to give them second birth. Jesus once said, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. What Jesus is saying, no one gets to experience heaven unless they're made new. And in this, we actually talked about this a few weeks ago. He's talking specifically about being made new by the water, and he's talking about of the water and the spirit. He's talking about baptism, to be immersed in water, to bury your old self and be resurrected new. Jesus teaches us if we're born again that one day we'll stand before God in innocence because the guilt and debt of our sin has been paid fully by Jesus Christ. It's been reconciled. You die physically, but you spend eternity with God. And that's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. 
And when Wesley sat down a few hundred years ago to write this song, he somehow managed to give us it all in three minutes. He somehow managed to teach us about the birth of Jesus and the fact that this isn't small. And because of that, we need to join the triumph of the skies, that we need to praise that, that we need to celebrate that. Wesley talked about Jesus' life, the fact that he's human, he understands what we feel, even though sometimes we're not sure if that's true. That he lived life on this earth, he understands our pain, but in that pain and in, in that temptation, he lived a perfect life and eventually died on a cross and resurrected from the dead for us so that we can be reconciled to God, so that we don't have to carry the debt that our sin makes, and we can spend eternity with him. I don't know about you, but I think I've heard Hark to Hear Angels sing hundreds of times. But I never understood, I never fully grasped how beautiful it was how he was able to take the story of Jesus' life and put it into a song that we sing every single year. And so as a church and as a group of people, I hope this changes the way we sing that song. I hope we don't just sing it because it's fun and that's what you do at Christmas, but I hope when we sing it, we recognize how powerful this song is and how beautiful this song is and how much this song impacts our own life. This song is about our life changing just as much as it is about Jesus. And so my hope, my prayer for us as a church, as we get ready to sing it again, is that it has new meaning. And every Christmas when we sing this song, it hits us a little bit more and a little bit more because we realize how good it is to have a God who was born a child fully human, lived the perfect life in order to die on a cross to reconcile us so that we could have a relationship with God. Let's pray. God, thank you. Um, thank you for this time of year where we sing new songs, um, songs that are, are familiar to us, songs that bring joy to our hearts. But God, I pray that we take time to, to find the real meaning of these songs. To not just sing them, but to feel them. To not just sing them, but to understand them. To not just sing them, but to fully comprehend the words that we're singing in hopes of fully comprehending who you are and what you've done for us. God, thank you that for over 100 years, a group of guys that didn't totally get along decided to write a song and create a song that we can sing today that helps us understand who you are. God, that helps us see your whole life in a few moments and a few verses. God, we love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.